0: this time that we can gather together in this unique way and to lift our voices up to you. Lord God, you are so worthy and deserving of all the words that we have sung. I pray, Lord, now as we open up your word, I pray you would speak through me as I have nothing to say, but you have everything to say. And I pray that you would speak to each and every heart here and each and every heart that's tuned in, Lord, for your glory. we ask your blessing over this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat while I'm getting my table and chair. You guys get your Bibles open. Look at that, Daniel Williams. You getting your steps in? Is that you're going to count that? fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we are starting in the book of Romans. So if we'll all get our table of contents open, actually, that's where we kind of start. You'll see you have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the book of Romans is in the New Testament. It is the sixth book down. So whatever page that corresponds to in your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And we are going to be looking at all of chapter one this morning. So, also, let me make note mention that uh, you can take notes. I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, you can also uh, go to the U version or the Bible app um, and pull up on events this service, and the notes will already be there for you. Or we'll also publish the notes on our Facebook page. Oh, they might already be up there. I'm not sure, but they will be up there very soon. So if you want to just kind of sit and listen rather than write, that's fine too. But I know some of you are writers, uh, and so I encourage that as well. Let's start this morning by asking a question and participate. It won't be fun if you don't. Okay. How many of you, when someone says, I have some good news and I have some bad news, how many of you want the good news first? Raise your hand. Ooh. Okay, that means the rest of you. How many of you want the bad news first? Wow, okay, that surprised me a little bit because today we're talking about good news and bad news and I'm gonna give you the good news first. So hang with me on this, all right? Believe me, hang with, let me just say it this way. The good news I'm gonna give you is so good, it it deserves to come first, okay? And that's what Romans is. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote from Greece, he's in Greece, and he's writing a letter to a church in Rome. And what's unique about the church in Rome is it has both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And and Gentiles simply means not Jew. And so you have this this Jewish background and all the history that goes with it colliding with this this Roman Greco culture uh, that's now stumbling into this person of Jesus. And they're coming together. and, And as you might imagine, just picture this. Imagine a church where there are both Democrats and Republicans. You can, can, you, can, you, can you sense the tension that Paul is addressing in this whole letter to the church in Rome? And, and that's what chapter one, we're gonna look at. We'll see the tension a little bit more uh, next week and the week after, but just know that's kind of the setting. And it's people just like you and people just like me. That's, that's who Paul is writing. And, he, and he, so he's writing this letter and in it he says, I've got some good news and I have some bad news. And I'm going to give it to you just straight up. I'm going to give you the good news first and then the bad news. And so let's, let's kind of with that order in which we're going to look at this, I want you to consider and contemplate the good news, and I want you to also maybe um, sober up with the bad news, as, as will I. Okay. But let's start in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's a reference to the Old Testament. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So he's he's making sure understand Jesus came through the lineage of David. To a Jew, that's very, very important. That kind of continues this promise that God made to the people of Israel that the king, the ultimate king, the Messiah, would come through the line of David. And so Paul is just... Echoing that and reminding his Jewish brothers that that this man, this Jesus, comes through as a descendant of David according to the flesh and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God. That's the messianic reference. He is the guy. And what made him so? By the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. We have received grace and apostleship through him to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. That's, that's an echo reference to the Great Commission. When Jesus told uh, his disciples, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And so Paul's just simply saying that we've been commissioned to do just that. In obedience to the faith of all the nations on behalf of his name, including yourselves who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Now notice he's writing a letter to Christians. That's going to be important in just a moment. And he says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know if you recognize, but maybe you, you, you saw in the, there was, there was a first bit of good news in that. It was in verses three and four. And, and the good news is he's saying that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. I mean, the the whole basis of Christianity, the linchpin of Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for me, this was a stumbling block as I was trying to understand Christianity, this idea that dead people come back. I I just couldn't get past that. And then I began to read um, from smarter people than me, which isn't saying a whole lot, but they were way smarter and listening to the reasonableness of the resurrection, that it was more likely that it happened than it didn't. And that changed things for me. And, and Jesus, or excuse me, and Paul is saying that this, this good news is that Jesus was resurrected. He came back from the dead. And that changes everything, just for a moment, if you can. And, and maybe let's say you're struggling with that. Maybe you don't believe that. And I, I, I can sympathize with that. But if it's true... If it did happen, if it's more likely that it happened, that changes everything, doesn't it? Because has anyone else, did David Blaine pull that off? Street magic, no, he didn't. Has anyone else ever said, hey, in three days, I'm gonna die, but I'm coming back, and then pull it off? I mean, that's a guy, right, I've said that before, you gotta listen to that guy. That guy kinda changes things. And, And that's the good news that Paul is reiterating, is that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Now, that's the first bit of good news. Now, verses 8 through 14, I'm not going to read those verses, okay? All I'm going to tell you is that is Paul basically saying that he is currently in Greece and he wants to visit them in Rome. He says, I'm trying to get there. I really want to come. I want to come. I want to encourage you by my being there, but I also want to be encouraged by you as I've heard about your faith and the testimony of your witness. And I want to be encouraged by that. So that's what verses 8 through 14 say. And then let's pick it back up with verse 15, in verse 15, he says, So I am eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. Now, you gotta stop there for a minute. Who's this letter written to? Who do we say it was written to? Christians. And Paul is saying that he's eager to come and he's eager to preach the gospel to Christians. Now, we gotta understand what is the gospel? The, the gospel is essentially we're born broken. We have sin in our lives and it manifests itself very early and we get really good at it. And we try to live our lives as Captain King and CEO. And then at some point we realize we need the forgiveness of God and the only way that can happen is through the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and then his resurrection. And when you put your faith and trust in him and his work, we're born again. That's what the gospel is. So why is Paul Excited to preach the gospel to those who are already Christians. Why is that? Well, my friends, it's because the implicit message there is that we all, those of us who are Christ followers, we need to hear hear the gospel every day. Because it is so easy to default and to fall back into the law, to live life under the law, which means that you're, you're living your life in such a way that your moral performance gets you what you want from God. And it's so easy to fall back into that. It, it's just so easy. Once, once, we, once we experience grace, it's amazing. We're free from having to worry about, am I good enough? Have I done enough good things? We're, we're freed from that. But it's so easy if we're not mindful of staying in the grace of God, reminding ourselves of the grace of God, to fall back into the law, which is where we can walk around insecure, wondering and, and I know I'm talking to people right now. Some of you walked in here, and there's a sense that I don't know if God loves me as much as he loves others. Or there's a sense that you've walked in here, and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty spiritually mature, and, 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 and I've, I'm kind of deserving, and, and I've kind of merited God's favor. Or when you do something wrong, and, and you're like, I can't, go in, I can't go before God, because I, I, there's He's got to be really upset with me at this point. I keep doing this. I, I'm struggling, and, and it bothers me, but I just keep doing it. And, and so there's, there's, you, you kind of cower, and, and you're afraid to, and, and really question even whether you're forgiven, and maybe you don't even forgive yourself. I always find that to be amazing. And I've said to people before as such, when I'm stand, sitting in an office, and we're counseling, and, and they're struggling with and they go, I cannot forgive myself. I go, wow, that is quite an accomplishment. Because God who is perfect and holy and his standard is up here, he can. So you're saying your standard is higher than God's. Is that really what you believe? But it's just easy to fall back into that law. And so Paul says, I'm so eager to come and to preach to you the gospel of good news. Verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. What that means is that, Jesus came first for his people, the Jewish people. The Gentiles were always in God's plan. But in terms of priority, God revealed himself to Abraham as the father of the Jews, uniquely choosing that people group for no other reason than he chose them. And so Jesus came for them first. And, and Paul's just echoing that, is that it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. In verse for it is in, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from, the fa- from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And there are your two other aspects of the good news. The second aspect of the good news is it says, because Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm just not ashamed of it. Because it is the power of God. And, and that is significant. He, he's saying, um, I'm not ashamed. Now, look, the question is, why would he be ashamed? Why might people be ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I'll, I'll tell you what, because I, I just mentioned to you, uh, the first reason is that we've sinned against the holy God and we deserve his judgment. And that's not a real comforting thought. But what really is offensive I mean what really we might be ashamed of is that we might think I can't help myself at all. You mean you mean my being good doesn't impact that situation at all? No, it does not. That's offensive. You mean I'm so broken, I've sinned so much that Jesus had to die for me? My friends, that's offensive. Th- that's why you might be ashamed of the gospel. Or the resurrection, you mean a dead man came back from the grave? That's kind of hard to believe. I mean, who really believes that? That's, I'm kind of ashamed, you know, if, if, if you've mentally committed such intellectual suicide as that. Do you see how, how you could be ashamed, how I could be ashamed? And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? Because it's the power of to salvation. Notice it's not a proclamation that describes salvation. It's not a proclamation that points to salvation. He's saying it literally is power of salvation. And what he means by that is when the gospel is verbalized and when one reflects on it and listens and hears the message of the gospel and then by faith and trust and belief accepts it, something supernatural happens. There's a reorientation in your life there's a, there's a breaking free of guilt and shame that, that, that this far exceeds any workout or any job promotion. You, you, are, you become free in a way you never thought. It's like someone just lifts this burden off of you. My friends, that is power. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of that. And that is the good news. The good news is that the gospel is not merely a concept at all it is power that is unleashed and triggered when we put our faith and trust in it verse 16 says it is god's power for salvation to everyone who believes to everyone it's not exclusive it's not for the in crowd it's to everyone who believes and then the third maybe the most miraculous or the most amazing aspect of good news is in verse 17, it says it is, the God, it is in it, in it being the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Do we know what righteousness is? Righteousness means good standing. You are um, acquitted. You are innocent, and you, and you walk out free, and there is there's no legal binding on you at all. Righteousness is you are are, you are right. You you got all the answers right. In, in In a spiritual context, it means that God says, everything about you, everything about you is perfect. And what Paul is saying, the good news here is Paul is saying that Jesus did more than just clean our slate. He did more than than the work on the cross that allows us to be forgiven so that we can kind of start life with a clean slate again. He did more than that. He gave us his righteousness. That when you become a follower of Jesus, God says to you, it is declared upon you, you are legally proclaimed perfect. Not just at that moment, now don't screw it up, but until Jesus comes back into eternity. Does that sound like good news? Can that chase away guilt and shame in your life? I mean, that's amazing news. And and that's what's so unique about Christianity. Uh, Please hear this. Christianity is so unique. It is so different. You see, all the other religions, they're about our bringing to our gods, our righteousness, our right living, and saying, please accept it. I hope it's good enough. But Christianity is unique. Christianity is God bringing his righteousness to us and saying it's a gift. It's a gift. Take it. And then go forward, walk forward, live your lives in light of the fact that God, your Father, says, There's my perfect son, there's my perfect daughter. That's how He sees you. That's the power and the work of Christ. That's the gospel. That, my friends, is good news. And that is what Paul opens this letter with saying, I got some good news. And here it is. Now, let's go to the bad news, which you wanted to hear first, apparently. So I'm sorry. That you're getting it second. But let's just look at the good news. Verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse and i'm going to start there paul says the bad news the bad news is is, is you have no excuse if you reject god if you reject the good news you, you can't hide behind you can't say I, I, I was raised in a bad home no one no one came and told me I, I, it just didn't make sense i didn't understand Paul saying you don't have that excuse God has taken that excuse. He's provided clues that he exists and he's done it in creation. When you stand and you see all that has been made, all that is in front of you, you yourself, if you ever watch a child being born, you think that was in my wife's tummy? When you see the precision of nature, and when you see the beauty and majesty of creation, God is saying, I'm here. Can you top this? Are you grander than that? You have no excuse. You've been created in the image of God. Everybody, even the the biggest atheist there is, deep down inside has a sense that someone greater than them is out there. But they suppress it. Some of you are suppressing it right now in here. Some of you are suppressing it online. You're, You're suppressing it because the implications are too great. That the thought of having to submit, the thought of having to worship someone other than yourself is very scary. It's very challenging. It would, it would, it would change the course of your life. You, and and you, you don't think you'd be happy. And I understand that. I lived that way for 21 years of my life. Science would have you to believe, in light of the fact that God is saying, I've left and dropped the calling card in its creation, science would have us to assume that inorganic life cannot produce organic life. Yet, if there is no personal creator, then what science has to put out there is that organic life happened by chance. And if you read the chance of that happening, it's astronomically small. I, I saw one try to calculate it being that it, has, it was to 10 to the 40,000 power. That's 10 with 40,000 000 zeros. I may not get that right. That might not be the right math. But it was 10 to the 40,000 power. There we go. Of, li- of it happening. Now let's just, that that's number's too big. Let's just say one in a million chance. Okay, let's just say, because we can kind of get our mind around a million. And, and here's what I'd ask you. Let's just say you're betting on a horse. Are you choosing the horse that, that, whose odds are one in one million of winning? Let's just, let's make it easier. One in 1,000. Are you putting everything you got on that horse, number nine, one in 1,000 chance of winning, but man, put all, all of it right there. I'm going all in on that guy. Would you do that? No. But, but that's what science is saying. Science is saying, put it all in on the fact that there is no personal creator, even though there's one in 10 to the 40,000th power chance that it happened in the way they want you to believe, in the absence of a divine personal Creator. Listen to this quote. This is a a good quote from a Christian philosopher. He says Imagine a person who comes in here tonight, and he was speaking to a, a church crowd, and argues that no air exists, but continues to breathe air while he argues. Now, intellectually, atheists continue to breathe. They continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe. To make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values but the atheistic view of things would in theory make such quote breathing impossible they are breathing god's air all the time as they argue against him so we have here the fact that we have no excuse if we reject god and we reject the good news paul is saying my friends that's part of the bad news moving on verse 21 he says, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. In the absence of the one true God, we will look for other gods. We have been wired, hardwired by God to worship and ideally it was to worship him exclusively but because we suppress that because of the implications that i mentioned a moment ago because we suppress that we look for other gods we 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 search them out because we've been created for that and these other gods can be uh, can be money they can be our children they can be comfort they can be beauty they can be status they can be power whatever they might be we all have them and you know when you have them is when they're threatened And when they become threatened, and when my when my idols become threatened, and we start to to stress out, and we start to get anxious and we start to have fear. My friends, when that happens, you, you know that you're treading very closely to one of your idols. Maybe it's your health. Now, I'm not saying that when something happens to something that that really is important to you, and those things that I mentioned to you, they're, they're good things. I'm not trying to say that they're bad things. The problem is we take good things and we elevate them up to be God things. And when they become threatened, it starts to wreck our world. It's hard to get out of bed. The desire to live fades a little bit. And when that happens, you realize that you've put your affections and your happiness and your meaning and purpose on something that cannot bear the weight of all of that. Only God can do that. Whatever you put your faith and trust and happiness and affection in that isn't God, there's always gonna be a threat. There's always something out there greater than whatever it is that you are making your God. But you cannot say that about God, our, our, our creator, our omnipotent, omniscient, ever-present God. God. And so what happens when we do that, we, 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 we become held hostage to these idols because we have to have them. And when they become threatened, like I said, we get worked up, we get concerned when, when economic downturns happen, when a pandemic happens, when a divorce happens, when a diagnosis happens. We're held hostage by them. And that's the bad news. Is that God does not want us to be held hostage. He wants us to be free. And yet we do this to ourselves. Verse 30, verse 24, verse 24. We're, we're cruising through bad news. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with, the, with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. <sighs> Although they know full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Now I know, as I was reading that, you're like, some of you were like, wow, that sounds a lot like today. And sadly, it does. But let's go back. Let's look at this last aspect of the bad news. And it specifically, he talks about God's wrath you see, when we think of God's wrath, we think of something typically cataclysmic. We think of an earthquake or a tsunami, a hurricane, something big that just wipes out a lot of people. And, and people are, are quick to run and say, yeah, that's God's judgment on this nation. That's God's judgment. It may be, it may not be. It might just be also the fact that we're in a broken, fallen world and, and natural disasters happen. And that's kind of like God, when he sent us, it's like he sent us into prison. Because of our sin, and we deserve to go to prison. Well, my friends, bad things happen in prison. But what I want you to notice is that God's judgment is coming, and it's, and it's being expressed, and we think of it as something that's future-oriented. It is, the big one. But he's judging now, and how is he judging? Did you notice? It's, it's more subtle. It's less dramatic. What is, what, what's the judgment? God is turning people over to what they want. They don't want a life with God. They don't want a life following and submitting and, and worshiping God. And, and, and they, they want to worship their own little gods. And when they do that, and all that comes with it, like I said, there's, there's like this, this spiritual and moral degeneration. And God says, I'm giving you what you want. I'm not going to intervene I'm not gonna intervene through circumstance. I'm not gonna intervene through, through, through someone who comes with a word of wisdom or, or caution or, or maybe even rebuke. I, you are on your own. And so, so God judges in that he, he delivers over his wrath and his judgment will be against anyone who rejects God and who rejects the good news that Paul just started this letter with. Now it's very important. That, that last part of verse 32 is very important. That, that who are we talking about? Well, there was, there was quite a list here, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But what I want you to notice is verse 32. It says that those who practice such things deserve to die. It's those, who's, those who practice, those who regularly, in an ongoing way, without godly sorrow, who, who, who don't try to repent, who don't try to step back and realize I'm doing something wrong. Because... The list I read, every every one of us is on that list. The question is, do we want to be on the list? The question is, are we okay being on that list? The question is, do we look at that and say, "Ah, that's just being people? Is there any godly sorrow? Is there any sense that, no, I don't want to be on that list, and God, I'm sorry that I'm on that list. I'm I'm sorry that I I, I struggle with this and I struggle with that, But, but we're regularly coming to him and before him, and we're confessing that, and we're seeking his forgiveness, and we're asking for the power of God to change us that is entirely different. So it's important that we recognize this is a a strong word and God says, I'm gonna turn you over. I'm gonna turn you over. And if something doesn't change, if you don't come to your senses, then you will go the way you wanna go all the way to hell. You see, hell is the absence of God, which is what people want when they're just living like this. I don't want God, God says, okay, I will give that eternally over to you. And hell is entirely different than here. Here, you see, God's presence still exists. The church is still here, and the church is still proclaiming the good news. You're still hearing the good news, but there'll be a day in hell when all that will be gone. It'll be dark, the the Bible describes hell as the weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a mental anguish the likes of which you and I have never experienced, ever. And it comes not because God sends people who want to be with him away. He never does that. He simply says to those who don't want to be with him, here you go. Eternity without me. And this is the bad news. The sobering news that Paul is sending to these people in the church in Rome because they've exchanged, the Bible says, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they've, they've, they've looked at creation, they've seen creation, they said, I recognize that, that someone greater than me is out there who's deserving of my thanks and my gratitude and my praise and my worship and my submission, but I'm going to suppress that because I don't want to do that. And I'm going to believe the lie that I'm a God. I'm going to believe the lie that, that life is up to me. And, and that's what I see in our culture today. The thing that just is so hard to see is that people are believing today that what truth is, is being true to yourself. Whatever you feel you are, then live that out and be that person. It's the same thing that was happening in Rome. Be your own God. Call your own shots. It's alive and well today. That's why this book, even though it's old, is so applicable, my friends, because humanity hasn't changed. The human condition hasn't really changed. And Paul is warning them, with the bad news. And then did you, did you, you, you heard me as I, as I read, what's the consequences of life that's lived apart from rejecting God? Well, I wanna, I'm gonna hold back two that where I think are the ones I wanna focus in on momentarily. But certainly the one that everyone runs to, first, is homosexuality. And and I'll admit, this is the strongest text in God's word. In Old Testament, New Testament, this is the strongest text that supports the idea that God's will is for marriage between one man and one woman, a heterosexual marriage that's that's protected with a marriage covenant. This is the strongest text for it. You will not find a stronger argument than right here. But did you see what else is on the list? (laughs) Let's not lose sight of that. We, we see that there's, there's social disorder. There's family breakdown. There's relational breakdowns. These things are, are, are what happen. These are the consequences of when we don't live a life with God, when we reject him. But the two I want to point out, because homosexuality gets way too much play here, my friends. Homosexuality is one sin among many. The two I want to pull out, they begin with a G. And I think that in all likelihood in this place right now, in this room, these are the two that are more for us to really wrestle with. The first is greed. Greed. Having to have more. I mean, does that really honestly describe your heart in any way? Is there a sense that you really just have to have more? And you're not gonna be happy unless you have more. I I gotta have more because everyone around me has more. I I gotta have more because it just seems like it's more fun. I gotta have more because people will think better of me. I will think better of myself. My in-laws might like me. Greed, just feel that. Because we can, we can kind of go, I don't struggle with my sexual orientation, so I feel good. But do you struggle with greed? And the next one begins with a G, and it's called gossip. And it's when you talk about somebody else and you've got no business talking about them. When you talk about somebody else behind their back in any other way that is of encouragement, Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may grace those who hear. That's what's to come out of our mouths. And yet I think we can find gossip so easy and really think nothing of it. And yet Paul says, that's in the category, that's on the list of the consequences of when we don't see God for who he is. When we are not amazed and and submitted to and worshiping his eternal power and his divine nature, that creation at the very least shows us. So there is Paul's beginning of this letter Saying, I got some really good news, amazing news. But I got some bad news. And it's left for us to do with it as we will. And what I want you to notice is one aspect of that good news was the resurrection. I just want to leave this with you, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus. The basis of Christianity is not a moral code. It is an event, something happened something news worthy and that is that jesus came back from the dead and christianity stands on that that is the foundation if you can find somebody else that outdoes jesus in that way well then come talk to me it'll be worth the conversation and i will love to hear about it but until you find someone better we are called to submit and surrender to worship jesus christ as the son of god our resurrected lord and savior Okay. Well, I'm going to give you some homework, but I'm going to ask the band to come up here. And as I'm giving you this homework, let me just, I'm going to give you some questions. Because I don't know if you noticed, in a whole chapter in the Bible, there was not one command. And I'm not going to make one up for you. My, my job is to read what God's Word says. But let me give you some questions that I think come out of this chapter that I'm going to just ask, reflect on them this week. The first question is, am I living my life from grace or moral goodness? Just ask yourself. Am I living my life? Is the default of my thought process and attitude is it I'm living from grace or do I still think I've got to morally perform? Second question is, are you ashamed of the gospel, the message of Christ? Are you ashamed of it? Are you telling others about it? Thirdly, are you able to say with confidence, and I would even add aloud, that you are fully loved by God and good enough in His sight? I mean, can you say, would you say to someone, I am fully loved by God and I'm good in His sight? Can you say that without feeling bad? Because if you cannot say that, then you don't understand grace. You don't understand the good news. Fourthly, has creation pointed you to God's eternal power and divine nature? Do you see creation? Do you kind of go, eh? I mean, my goodness, we're in a place where we see it every day. And does it shout back at you in such a way that there's humility, and there's wonder, and there's awe? Fourthly, what am I most afraid of losing or not having? That'll tell you where your idol is. That'll tell you where God's um, competitor is. Are you, what are you afraid of losing or not having? And then lastly, do you find God's wrath to be real? Because to the extent that you find God's wrath to be real, the good news will really truly be good.